Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group. Passionate about all things leadership and management, so passionate in fact that I decided to start a podcast about it and here we are in season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Kieran Flanagan and Dan Gregory, who are the joint founders of the Impossible Institute and the authors of Forever Skills, the 12 skills to future-proof yourself, your team, and your kids. The Impossible Institute is a strategic think tank that is designed to help leaders, teams, and organizations be people smart and make change positive. Together, Kieran and Dan are the strategic and creative team behind the most successful new product launch in Australian history, and have applied their considerable experience to social change programs for the United Nations in Singapore, to category reinventions and innovation initiatives for the likes of Coca-Cola, Unilever, Bayer and News Corp. They also run leadership development programs across Australia, Asia, Europe and the USA for organisations in categories as diverse as banking and finance, education, technology, pharmaceuticals, real estate, retail. And on top of that, they also write for Success Magazine, CEO Magazine in the USA, and are regulars on ABC TV's Gruen series, Sunrise on Channel 7, and Sky Business News. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explore their newest book in great detail. I start off by asking Kieran and Dan why did they decide to write this book. We speak about the three spheres of change and how to embrace opportunities. We discuss the idea of thinking in questions, not in statements, and how to imagine an alternate framework or universe. And I finish the interview by asking him about why it is important to hold yourself accountable and be values focused. So keep listening. And as always, we'd really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Kieran Flanagan and Dan Gregory, authors of Forever Skills, the 12 skills to future-proof yourself, your team, and your kids. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Well, welcome, Kieran and Dan, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time to be on it. And we are a little bit excited because it is the first time that I've had the opportunity to interview two guests at once. So this is a, is a first for us. Just so the listeners have a bit of an idea, who are Kieran and Dan? Kieran and Dan are, are business partners. Uh, we're partners in a business called the Impossible Institute, which is an organization that's designed to help organizations navigate change uh, more effectively than they have. And uh, I thought I should point out, because people often ask, we're actually business partners, not life partners. Uh, although after 25 years of working together, it often feels a bit like a marriage. We have spent a lot of time together over the years, so... We know each other pretty well, and that builds a really good partnership from a work point of view. And I'd imagine you probably bring to that partnership uh, complementary skills. That's one of the one of the benefits in a team. You you augment each other's weaknesses, and you allow strengths to amplify as well. So we're here today to talk about uh, your new book, Forever Skills: The Twelve Skills to Future Proof Yourself, Your Team, and Your Kids. So I'm going to ask the big question up front. Why did you decide to write this book? 
It's a great question. Uh, look, you know, we have the privilege of, in the work that we do, speaking and training, to have great oversight across a lot of industries. And that oversight means we get to see trends and patterns and hear conversations where people think they're reasonably unique. And every pretty much call we have or workshop we run or speech we show up at, people are in a panic about it, the amount of change around us and they are saying we're undergoing huge amounts of change and our industries I know changes around but we're very unique and that we really felt the brunt of change and we thought that everyone was panicking and we wanted to offer a different point of view on change in the marketplace and to have people take the panic out of change so they could be more thoughtful and more in control of it as much as they could be anyway. So I want to start with an excerpt, if I can, and it's uh, from the very beginning of the book. We typically think of change primarily in terms of what's changing. No great surprise, given our brains have evolved to view change as mostly threatening, often with good reason. So it stands to reason that we have a heightened sensitivity to the changes that occur in our environment, in technology, and even in the moods of the people around us. We talk about it hypothesize about it, evangelize it, and complain about it. We try and predict it, manage it, keep up with it, and we often panic about it. And I think that resonated with me because I, I liked the, the, the graphic which is in the book, and I know this is an audio podcast, so I'm encouraging listeners to, to go and buy the book to see the graphic I'm referring to, but you talk about the three spheres of change. Are you able to talk the listeners uh, through what your three spheres of change are? So the three spheres of change include what is changing, uh, what needs changing, and finally, what is unchanging. And I think the the first sphere of change, what is changing, is the thing that gets most of our attention. That includes things such as trends, uh, marketplace changes, advances in technology, all the kind of things that make the news and distract us. What needs changing is is really more where innovators and entrepreneurs tend to focus. You know, what's the change that they want to bring to the world? The final sphere of change, what is unchanging, tends to get the least amount of attention. And yet, according to behavioral research, it's the thing that's most important in terms of making a change strategy successful. The more we're able to link uh, change to the familiar or anchor change in what is already understood and known, the, the more likely we are to engage with change and find it a, a positive experience. With that in mind, do you think that's one of the reasons why in so many organisations they seem to have this resistance to change and that's because they don't provide the context about what's unchanging? Yeah. I think that's a, a, a big part of it. But I think the, the other part of it is, is also it's quite natural to resist change. You know, change historically um, throughout human evolution hasn't always been a positive experience. So I think we're we're always a little bit um, risk-averse and a little bit uh, cautious when it comes to the unknown. And the thing, you know, we deal with a lot is you have to remember that human beings in a corporate workplace have built up a level of competence in the things they're good at. And when we change those things, they, they're not naturally good at them. And they tend, like all human nature, to gravitate to the things that give us the sense of accomplishment, where we feel proficient, 
and we tend to do those things first. So people revert back to where they're good and whenever you're asking people to pick up new skills or do new things, it is incredibly challenging for people. So you need to anchor them and still give them a sense that uh, they are good and contributing and they need to get wins and anchoring sometimes to the familiar can help them get those wins. In the book, you talk about this idea of embracing new opportunities. So how do we encourage people to do that? I think um, a, a big part of getting people to embrace new opportunities is is very much learning how to frame it in terms of what's in it for them. Um, a, a lot of the time when we're trying to get people to change, the, the rationale or the reasoning that we use is, is very much based on outcomes that we're particularly looking to drive. And yet I think the more we're able to say, well, hang on, this is what's in it for you. This is, this is how it, it uh, aligns with your values is actually a really powerful way of getting people to embrace opportunities and, and actually to find the, the opportunity in change. I think, uh, you know, too often our, our cognitive bandwidth is actually quite narrow. We tend to focus on, on what we know and what we understand. And so if we can link change or if we can link uh, a vision for something new to something that's already well understood, it increases our chances of engaging with it. So in the book, you introduce uh, the readers to the three forever skills clusters. Are you able to share what those are? The three forever skills clusters, look, we developed these to make, uh, I guess, you know, what was 12 skills much more sticky and tangible and pass onable. And what we found when we were interviewing people and talking to them about the skills that will matter forever was that we tended to notice these groups come in and we were able to connect them. And the three clusters, the first one was creativity. So it was, you know, can you, can you gather insights and can you innovate, problem solve, can you be mentally agile and flexible? And then the second bucket was communication. And communication skills, you know, no matter what AI comes into place, no matter what technology comes into play, that we're human beings are still going to need to engage, persuade. We're going to, you know, have to gather others to our beliefs, our, you know, our tasks, the things we want them to do. We're still going to have to move them towards a common goal. And the third bucket was control. And control uh, became uh, sort of groupings of can I control myself, my thoughts, my feelings, my actions? Can I implement and get things done? Can we control our resources and our environment? And, you know, are we going to be able to instigate social control in the sense that can we reach consensus and agree what is morally acceptable and appropriate and ethical? Because those things change over time but the ability to reach a broad-based view uh, has always been there and we in our opinion always will be also because i want to dig a bit deep into uh some of these uh, creativity skills and in uh you, you mentioned it through your research you've identified four creativity skills that promise to be in high demand not just in spite of the change but because of it and i'd like to give the listeners a a high-level overview of what they are and, and how they can look to build those skills in themselves. Yeah, I think that of the creativity skills, the first skill is insight. 
And one of the, one of the interesting things about the, the period of time we're living in is we're not lacking for information. You know, information is, is ubiquitous and democratized. You know, the, there's almost, we're almost overloaded with information. And what we've realized is, and certainly a lot of the conversations we had with, with you know, some of the leaders and, and educators and, and futurists that we spoke to was that the data isn't an answer. Data is actually input. And it's actually our ability to look at information and to actually synthesize it for meaning and, and have an understanding of, of what insights might be available uh, on the back of that, that, that data is actually really important. And it's actually, it, that's actually a creative skill, being able to create meaning from, from, from raw information. So for instance, an example of that is, imagine if you, um, if you jumped off a one meter high building 100 times versus jumping off a 100 meter high wall uh, once. You know, they both have the same essential input. In other words, you've traversed a vertical distance of 100 meters by jumping off a wall. However, the results are completely different. So being able to look at raw information and actually turn that into meaning is, is a, a critical creativity skill. And the, uh, the second creativity skill we looked at was conversion. And conversion is really interesting because it's always been around. There's ability to convert one thing into another, you know, from raw materials into a more finished product. But now importantly, uh, from one, I guess, skill or way of thinking to another. And it will increasingly um, matter to us and be important for the future because AI is going to do a lot of our thinking and jobs in a sense. And this is going to mean as well that we're going to have a whole lot of jobs. So all the futurists tell us that the number of jobs and careers that we'll have, you know, the rise of um, the gig economy, people, you know, being, you know, being specialists in their area and coming together to fulfill projects rather than working in one job title for their entire life. So we know that's going to happen, which means conversion, our ability to turn one thing into another will become increasingly important. So can we take a skill from one area and what we call mix and macro it? Can we, can we go big, right? If you're learning a skill, can you go, well, actually, uh, this skill seems, you know, in the technical way, a specialist in an area. But if I look at that, it's actually a skill like being able to synthesize information. Coding for us is potentially not a particularly important skill in the future in the sense that robots can probably code themselves, according to futurists we were talking to. But the ability to break things, if you think about what coding at its fundamental skill is, it's an ability to make things simple and step-by-step. And that, so that is a good example of conversion. I can, I can turn things, uh, that ability to make things singular and make it step-by-step and executable will be forever important. And that's why conversion is our second creativity skill. And then if, if you think about um, our classical definition of creativity, you know, we typically think of creativity as being an ability to draw, being an ability to play a musical instrument or to compose a piece of poetry. Whereas our view of creativity is it's about a capacity to solve problems in a way that we haven't seen before. And there's a whole raft of research out of places like IBM, uh, EY, uh, the World Economic Forum, 
that have, have pointed to creative problem solving as being the critical skill for the 21st century. And when you, you filter it through that definition of being able to solve problems in, in new ways, um, that's, that's actually a critical skill. And, and that's, again, as Kieran said, the, you know, robotics and AI will be very good at doing tasks that can be um, developed into patterns and, and uh, replicated. You know, those are, those are the kind of tasks that, that AI and robotics will do incredibly well. The thing that they, uh, that, that technology will struggle with um, a little more is being able to make connections that don't make logical sense, which is very much a, a, a creative process and, and something that human beings can actually do probably a lot better than, than machines can. And, and ultimately, the, the other thing, the, the last of those um, four creative skills is agility. And when we talk about agility, I think it really comes back to, uh, you know, the capacity to learn something, to unlearn it and relearn a, a new skill. So to be, to be flexible uh, uh, across different contexts and, and different applications of, of the work that we do. So within those four creativity skills, there's a, as I was reading the book, there's a few key uh, points which really stood out for me. And I, I'd like to explore those if I could. But one of them, the first one was this idea that people need to try to sit on the other side of the argument. I thought that was a fascinating way of framing it. Yeah, it was a really, um, you know, speaking to a lot of different people and the tools we've used ourselves. You know, great people. It's funny, we're talking to... Uh, Will Anderson the other day and uh, he was talking actually about how he writes comedy and what was really interesting for us is that he says he sort of makes his own imaginary um, store person that uh, will throw up the other side of the argument. He said I need to actually be able to argue the other side to my own belief and I deliberately will solve the other side in order to find the funny even against, you know, I want to have an audience who don't believe what I have to say to actually walk away laughing but to believe and to be chipped away at with their own point of view. And it's a really great technique if you can look at the other side of where you normally sit. And, you know, what was interesting, we interviewed a guy called Dr. Sydney Decker and Sydney is... Uh, works in workplace health and safety. And he, he had a really interesting similar conversation with us about, he says when they, you know, when they go in and a workplace incident has happened, what they do is they go in and he said, traditional thinking means we look for what went wrong. And, you know, we, we go, well, the, the, you know, the surgeon was tired that day. So he, they, you know, why did the wrong leg get amputated? Well, they were tired and the shifts were this long and, all of these things and we blame these systems and he said what was interesting was that in his work they went in and actually also looked at what happened when things went right so they went well what was going on when we chopped the right leg off and what they found was the things were exactly the same is that when things went wrong and right there was no difference and what they realized is they were actually looking at the wrong measures it didn't matter how much sleep the surgeon had had for example what mattered was someone didn't you know didn't speak up and it was communication things and things like that that went wrong in some of the examples he used so it's a really great creative skill for anyone listening it's to give yourself you know to have the discipline and mental kind of flexibility to look at 
not only your point of view on the world, but uh, the opposite point of view. It's also why diversity of input is, is critically important. One of the things that we found from the American Trademark Office is innovations to a large extent tend to come from outside the world that they're applied to. In other words, uh, having outside input into your industry means that you're not blinded by the way things have been done or the way they should be done and you can actually see how things might be done differently. And oftentimes you have very intelligent people in an industry who can't innovate simply because they know too much. So being able to diversify your input and see the world from multiple points of view actually lifts you know, lifts your collective intelligence and allows you to make, you know, better, more strategic decisions. You also talk about this idea of thinking in questions, not statements. So how do, how do people start to shift into to that approach of being able to look at things as a question and not just uh, presupposing what they already know? I think that's exactly the right word, Julian. It is, it is about presupposing a solution. So, for instance, if someone says, to you, oh, we need to build a bridge. The only um, the only output you're able to to generate from that is is to build a bridge. Whereas if someone says to you, well, how do we get across the river? It might be that a tunnel is a better solution than a bridge, or a ferry, or uh, a zip line. You know, depending on on the application. And so when when you tend to think in statements, you tend to close down possibilities. But thinking in questions allows possibilities to open up and allows for a, a, a bigger field of, of um, exploration to be, to, to be looked at. And I think that's what is, is critically important is when we, when we frame a, a problem that we're trying to solve is frame it in, in a questioning format that allows for um, a breadth of exploration before you start cutting off options. So that's what it's really about is, is instead of approaching uh, a problem from a presupposed or or a a typical kind of solution. Focus on the solution rather than than the process of how you would normally get there. You also mentioned an idea of an alternative framework or universe, and I think I found that in our experience that people respond very well when they have a framework to to operate within. How do you encourage people to imagine an alternative version? It's about setting up a parameter and, you know, creative people and our, we started our careers off in the advertising world and we were advertising creatives and we owned our own agency. We've taught creative people uh, from all over the country and world. And one of the things we teach them is this, you know, imagining a different framework. So how do we hold ourselves and our brains into another belief and see things from that point of view? And one of the things we like to do, one of the frameworks we like, is what we call impossible questions. And an impossible questions come out of our love of high school math. I know, no one said that really ever before. Uh, we really like high school maths. And in high school maths, they play let's pretend, right? So once you get pretty good at math, they come along and they say, hey, let's imagine that you can square root a negative number. Something that you've been told early on when you're learning mathematics is not possible. They say you just can't square root a negative number. But they come along some years later and say, let's play, let's pretend. And in doing so, abstract mathematics opens up. They make an imaginary number called I. And we say, you know what, if you want to be creative and solve problems and improve your creativity skills, then try 
impossible questions. Try imagining something to be true that currently isn't. Try and try and put yourself in that point of view. Like, for example, if we said, uh, what do we currently believe about re- opening a restaurant, for example? And you'd say, well, we currently believe that a restaurant needs a location and menus and food. Like it's essential it has food. What if we just took a parameter and we said, can you imagine a restaurant with no food? And what might happen has happened with some people we know who are looking at a restaurant in the middle of a fresh food market with no food as such. Uh, but what they wanted to do was get great chefs to allow people to go and do their own shopping and bring amazing ingredients they love to chefs to custom make their meal for them as they go. And if you know anything about the restaurant game, one of the biggest costs is and challenges is trying to estimate how much food you need and food wastage. So by suspending a belief around a restaurant, I it has to have food, you can actually fundamentally change the restaurant uh, thinking itself. So that's what we like to do. We say imagine an alternate framework. And the human brain, to be creative, actually needs parameters. And one of the biggest mistakes we know from people trying to be creative or problem solve or innovate is innovating, just saying to a team, oh, you need to come up with new ideas, is extremely challenging. And what we try to do is you need to put some parameters around it, which is why an alternative framework is hugely useful. So we don't do innovation workshops, for example, anymore. We run risk prototyping because what we found is if we come in and say, let's innovate, people find it hard. But if we come in and say, hey, let's hang out for a day and imagine all the things that could threaten your business, like if your competitors opened up something, if this piece of technology got invented that would absolutely kill your business, people are really able to imagine themselves into that scenario. So we play that game and then we say, hey, why don't you look at making some of these ideas yourself? And that is the power of an alternative framework. It's funny you talk about an innovation workshop. I've got to sit in on one next week actually with one of our clients. So now I'm going to have this risk prototyping idea run through my head as they do to go through it. Hmm. Well, it'll be interesting. You'll, it will be interesting for your brain as you sit there, for you in your head to say, what if we'd framed this from, you know, what would kill our business? Because the problem is in innovation workshops is we tend to put our best and brightest people in the room and we say to them unconsciously, hey, let's now imagine you out of a job where you're really, because you're really good and you're the best people we have, which is why you're here, but you're actually really good at the current system. It's why companies tend, you know, a lot of startups, it's why Uber brutalizes the taxi industry and the taxi industry couldn't possibly imagine Uber because they can't, they can't see that, the world from that point of view at the time. So it'll be interesting as you go into it for you to see it that way. In fact, we've actually found it's, it's, your, most, um, it's your most annoying team members the ones that ask the most difficult questions that are often the best innovators. Partly because, you know, as Kieran said, your, your best people are actually invested in the status quo. The status quo works for them. They thrive in the status quo. So they're hardly incentivized to, to undermine the status quo, whereas people who uh, uh, might be characterized as more challenging members of the team 
actually aren't bought into the status quo and they're willing to play with an alternative reality. So so oftentimes it can be the people that we don't necessarily think of as our best people who can be the best innovators. I was fascinated with this idea of, uh, in, in the influence section in your book, about know what you're really selling because a lot of people will try to say they don't sell. They're not a salesperson. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, look, to be honest, we're all, we're all selling. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a leader, you're selling your vision. Um, if you're a business person, you're selling your product or your service. If you're a parent, you're selling bedtime and broccoli. You know, we're all engaged in an influence game to, to some extent. And what we mean by know what you're really selling is rather than thinking about the product or service or even the features and benefits, actually really drill down to what's the, what's the value you're providing someone with? Because um, that's really, you know, where people purchase. And it's that, that, that deep psychological need that gets satisfied that's actually critically important. Because oftentimes people don't buy something because of its functional value or its, even its utilitarian value. We buy it because it might have a particular design aesthetic, because it says something about who we are as an early adopter. It says something, it says we look fashionable, for instance. So again, there's a whole lot of, of value statements that really sit beneath the, the, the functional um, value that we have as a, as a product or a service or, or even as a supplier. Um, and what, what we really want uh, people to do is to sort of drill down and say, well, well, this is what I'm offering at a literal level. Then there's the, 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 the emotional benefit I get out, out of that. But what's the real value that I'm providing? And that's actually where real engagement happens. Once you align your value with people's values, and they get to see how you help them to be more of who they believe they are. That's actually when engagement really kicks off. I did find it interesting where you speak to the idea that identity helps us drive influence. And I think that the reason I want to explore that with you is quite often uh, in the workshops we do, I think it, it can sometimes be a challenge for people to take a moment and actually reflect on themselves as leaders and think, well, what is, what is their identity? Yeah, I think that's a it's it is it is a it's a challenging thing, but but we actually understand it at a very um, at a very unconscious level. So, for instance, if I if I said uh, to an audience full of Australian people, how many people here have to remind themselves how to how to be Australian every day, and almost no one does because it's it's something we do unconsciously. Or if someone's a a fan of a particular sports team, I don't have to motivate them to be enthusiastic about the team. It's actually anchored in in their identity. And this shows up in, in all sorts of all sorts of behavior. You know, people don't say, well, I bought a Macintosh computer or I bought some Apple hardware. They say, I'm a Mac. And so we define our identity by the, the organizations we associate ourselves with, with the social um, structures that we're, we're a part of. And that's actually really what's driving our, our decision-making at a very unconscious level. You know, we don't really think, oh, is this, is this a product I want? We think, oh, am I, am I that kind of a, a person? Am I that kind of a, a consumer? And oftentimes when you hear people um, becoming resistant to an idea or resisting a sale, they'll actually say something like, oh, I just don't think it's me. And what they're really articulating is, no, no, that particular product or, or idea or cause doesn't really align with, with my identity and who I, who I think of myself as and who I want to project to the world that I am. And identity is this really interesting lever that, yeah, if people, if, they, if they're not connected to that identity, it's really hard to move them from it because they just, 
I, they just can't see themselves as that that kind of person. And you really need to dig into that. You know, sometimes we ask audiences uh, to put up their hands and, you know, who considers themselves uh, Australian. And pretty much most of the audience will put up their hands and then um, you can ask them, you know, out of people with their hands up, how many of you were not born in Australia? And uh, they, their hand, some people will leave their hands up. And then you go, okay, but um, who doesn't consider themselves Australian uh, left when you ask into that? The people left with their hands, you'll say to them, how many of you are Kiwis? And the majority of people with their hands left up will be Kiwis. So, you know, what we realised is it happens time and time again because part of the New Zealand identity is that they're not Australian. They spend their whole lives going, we're not Australians. And even when they move here and live here and have been here for a long time, they still identify as Kiwi. So this identity runs really, really deeply. And if you can understand it and understand the identity of your workplace or your, you know, the brand or business you're building, you can really, really connect deeply and motivate people really powerfully, which is why we love identity. You also speak about this idea that leaders should create a culture worth belonging to. And I think that's obviously a challenge for a lot of leaders and organisations. How do they start that? Well, I think it's a, it's a great question, actually, Julian. And, you know, we spoke to Michael Henderson, who's, a, uh, who's an expert in culture and, um, you know, does a lot of work. In, he's, he's based in New Zealand. He's done work with people like the All Blacks um, and, and helping them, you know, figure out their culture. And I think culture's, culture's a, a combination of a, a number of different things. I think that's what makes it difficult. It's a, it's a, a series of behaviours. It's a series of beliefs. Um, and oftentimes those two things are codified in, in stories. And often a, a culture is a, a collection of stories that demonstrate what, what, what that particular culture values and what their expectations are of, of the conduct of the different members of that culture. And I think there's the, the, one of the things that makes culture quite difficult is there's positives and negatives. You know, if you have a really strong culture, typically we think of that as being a, a great thing to have. But it can also lead to things like groupthink. It can lead to things like um, um, having a myopic worldview or even being um, suspicious of people who come from outside that culture. Um, and And that's actually... One of the one of the, the interesting things about culture is it can be an incredibly positive thing, but it it can also have uh, negative side effects as well. So I think what you've got to be conscious of in terms of what what leadership looks like going forward is we've come from certainly a very corporate history that was almost militaristic in the way leadership was was ascribed. It was very hierarchical. It was very positional authority, and now. Now that people are able to be a little bit more uh, choosy in terms of where they, where they work, who they work for, the kind of conditions under which they will work, our capacity to build a culture that people really want to be a part of, where they, they are allowed to show up and do their best work and feel fully expressed, that's actually what leadership looks like. And that's a slightly more uh, complicated prospect than just simply giving orders and telling people what to do. So I think that is one of the one of the, the, the great challenges of of leadership 
Um, but I think that's always been one of the challenges of leadership. You know, all great leaders, we, be they national leaders or or leaders of organisations or, or leaders of, you know, sporting or social clubs, have understood that, that the culture is a, is a powerful part of how you get people to, to show up and to deliver what you need them to. I was fascinated with your uh, words around building a complete network. And I think that really struck a chord with me because I'm a, I'm a big believer that the relationships are a key to your success. And I think that, you know, if I reflect back on my early leadership career, I was probably one of the world's worst networkers. I didn't really understand the importance or the value that I could offer to a network. How do people start to build this uh, complete network? Well, look, we have the privilege and some of it we put in the book, a, a really great friend of ours who we bring in and run things with ourselves, his name is Jenny Garner and she's a networking ninja. She's amazing at it and uh, it's her thing and she's always the same as you, Julie, and she's built her career, she says, coming from the UK, knowing nobody at all and having to rebuild an entire network. And she talks about networking as being strategic rather than volume-based. So most people hate networking and, you know, they show up to networking events with a pile of cards and they look at how many LinkedIn contacts they have and they kind of go for volume and a numbers game. And she said it's absolutely not that. Great networking is having a core of people who uh, have your back who strategically offer different things and who can help you get where you'd like to go. So you can do it. You can start really small. And she says you can start with four. So she says, you know what, you can start with four, but make sure they're different. You, she calls them uh, promoters, I think. So they're sort of you're the people that will cheerlead for you, evangelize for you. They'll be really amazing for you and they'll be all over you know, your PR agent kind of thing, and they'll tell people how great you are. And she says, you you need those, but she says you also need people, I think she calls them your pit crew. So people who will look after you, people who will go, are you okay? What do you need? You know, you need some chicken soup today, <laughs> whatever you need from, from that there. And then she says, you need people who are professors. You need people who are really clever and who will help you, uh, learn and think and challenge your thinking and push your mindset you know and then she says so finally you need people uh, I can't remember the title she gives them but they're essentially people who kick your butt butt kickers and uh, they're people that will call you on you know when you tell say I want to achieve this or do this or grow this that they'll call you on it when you're not putting the work in or you know you're not doing what you said and she said here's the problem is most people tend to gather the one type of person in their network or they rely on one or two people to be everything to them and then they get cranky when they go along for some love and support and they get their butt kicked or the other way or their people never tell them you know that they can be more so she said we need to make it that we have different people and we don't need a lot of people, but every year we should analyze our network and be really uh, clear about who we know and how they potentially can help us. And of course, networking is also how can we help them? So to be very conscious of what we can do in return. 
And I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about sitting on the other side of the argument. What what it, we're talking about is how do you have a diversity of points of view in your own personal network as well as in your organisational um, um, structure. So, it, you know, in the same way, a, d- a diversity of points of view in an organisation helps be more innovative, helps us um, avoid risks and, and avoid contextual blindness. It's exactly the same as, as what Kieran was just describing in our network. We want to have different points of view, people who can serve us in different ways and people who are, you know, strong where we're weak and, and ask questions we wouldn't necessarily think to ask. So I think it's, you know, it's the same, it's the same theory. It's just applied at a more micro level rather than the organisational macro. Yeah, and I, I, would have, I think it's something which more and more leaders in, in corporate organisations should be considering is, is who is their network and who do they need around them so they can be the best they can be and then they can act in the support for other leaders as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it's, you know, coming back to where we started the, you know, this, this podcast was about, you know, how Kieran and I work together. What I think one of the things that made our, um, our business partnership work so successfully is we do see the world from, you know, quite different points of view and we have uh, quite distinct strengths and weaknesses and, and I think that's actually been part of what's made us successful is that we are very much not the same person and we hold each other accountable in, in ways that are oftentimes, I'm sure, uncomfortable, but, um, but actually incredibly useful. And it, and it helps us avoid some of the blindness of, of being you know, locked into our own point of view constantly. So it was on page 117 that you wrote something which really, really resonated with me. And so I've been lamenting uh, my LinkedIn feed of late in that uh, my LinkedIn feed tends to be filled with a lot of stuff that I just scroll past and not a lot of what I uh, resonated with me on page 117, which was this idea that we need more people to develop some thought leadership. I think there's not enough leaders on LinkedIn who are doing that. So how do we start to encourage people to be thought leaders? Well, I think, it, you know, um, and again, this is, this is a, a, a big question too. I think there's, there's a difference between being an expert and being a thought leader. And I think, the, you know, what fundamentally makes that distinction, and it's one of the things that we picked up with Matt Church, who's the, the founder of Thought Leaders Global, um, is this idea that, that expertise means that you understand your, your, your field or your sphere of influence particularly well. But what makes you a thought leader is your capacity to add something new to that field, whether it be a new perspective, whether it be a, a, a new practice or a new piece of intellectual property. And I think that's a really, um, I think that's a really useful filter for what thought leadership actually is. It's not just about being... Um, it's not just about being good at your job or being good at a particular function. It's about standing on the shoulders of giants um, and actually contributing something new that elevates your field and takes it to, to somewhere new. And uh, Matt, you know, and we uh, both are very connected in the Thought Leaders community and active in it. Um, it's a program people can sign up and do. But, you know, one of the great simple tools Matt uh, teaches to get people started 
is two questions that you can ask, which is uh, yes and and yes but. So whenever you're, you know, reading or writing an article in your expertise is to say yes and, or reading one, yes and, so something goes on top of, or yes but, and that's where you have a contrary opinion to the normal opinion. And, you you know, there's lots of work. For example, our book, there's plenty of work in the change space, right, right now. There's a lot of people having conversations about change. So we really had to sit down and say, you know, change really matters to us and we spend a lot of time helping companies and people do it better. But what's our thought leadership in the space and what thinking do we want to add to that thought lead to add to this category, which is still is not going away anytime soon. And you know, this this idea of what will stay and what will remain. And you know, we've had emails from people who I'm working in change management and this has fundamentally changed how I'm going to roll things out in our team. And, you know, that's just, that's why you want to do it and that's why you want to do thought leadership. So for us, it's, yeah, we need more people to keep furthering the human thinking forward and the human race forward. And I think everybody can be a thought leader. It just takes a whole lot of work because you have to get past the current thinking. And you have to do plenty of work to get to a know what the current thinking is, and then to be able to move it on, or to argue a counterpoint. And I think the the other part of that is is if you're not making some kind of change, you're not really leading at all. I think one of the one of the critical distinctions that Kieran and I believe around innovation is that it's not just about new product development or or iterative iterative improvement. It's actually about category leadership. You know, innovation is ultimately about defining what the future of an industry or a category is going to look like in the future. And that's the real opportunity for thought leadership is to, to take your, your field of expertise to, to the next stop along its, its evolution. And but I also would like to say, because it can be daunting and it's not necessary for everyone to be a thought leader, but we do, you're right, we do need more leaders on LinkedIn, for example, because a lot of people are great um, educators and we need people to also transmit and transfer current clever thinking and to be able to disseminate that out to a whole lot of people. So teachers, for example, may not be thought leaders in the set. Some of them obviously will be, but not all of them will be. But if they're across what's new and interesting and they're able to take that into classrooms, like my little girl is 10 and she has an amazing teacher this year, Mrs. Weir. And, you know, they talk about growth mindset. And, you know, it's just beautiful to see Carol Dweck's amazing work hitting my 10-year-old school class to help them navigate, you know, growing up and navigate how they approach their learning and setbacks and when things don't go to plan. So we absolutely need teachers who are willing to share that information as well. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction. You know, you know, Kieran's little girl's teacher didn't need to invent, you know, the concept of growth mindset, but she's smart enough to actually see its application and its usefulness for, for children. And that's, that's actually, you know, a, a, a different facet of leadership as well. You asked the readers to simplify the complex. Why is that such an important thing? 
so much complexity in the world today, isn't there? So, you know, it's, and the human brain is, looks for simplicity. And we, you know, we want to make things patterns that we can repeat. And if we want people to learn things and apply things, or we want to, you know, pass a message on, have you ever played Chinese whispers as a kid? And, uh, you know, you start hearing it. By the time it goes around a circle, if you make anything vaguely complex, it comes out completely different. It's why, you know, being able to simplify complexity is a forever skill. You know, how do you make stuff passable and learnable and shareable is absolutely critical. And, you know, in this, you know, and if you think about great Instagram, let's just think Instagram for a minute, great Instagrammers with big followings tend to go, actually, I'm simplifying something fairly complex in that, you know, you want to know what to wear, eat, follow music, whatever it is, I'm helping you out because I'm making it really simple for you. If you follow my feed, I'm going to help you know all these things you need to know. You don't have to go and follow a million feeds. You just need to follow me. So that skill becomes unbelievably important. And in a world where we create uh, 1.7 zettabytes of data a year, 2.4 quintillion bytes of data a day, according to IBM, that we're going to need people who can simplify complexity more than ever before. And again, curating information is actually a really powerful business model. If you think about people like TripAdvisor, um, you know, it's probably the most powerful travel organization on the planet. And all they really do is curate other people's opinions and, and, and connect people to information that's valuable. So, so making information not just um, accurate but accessible and useful is actually a, a, a terrific service. I, I resonated with uh, another part of the book where you talk about this idea of making your ideas accessible, achievable, and actionable. And I suppose the reason it resonated with me is that I, I like to like, consider myself someone that is never short of ideas, but I think it's that making sure they're accessible to people so that they can get a sense of who you are and where you want to go and, and what you're hoping to achieve. So, how can people start to do that? I think that's a great question. And it, it's certainly one of the things that I think I've, I've struggled with uh, as an individual in business. You know, quite often, I, you know, if I, I'll give a keynote speech and feedback I might get from someone might be, oh, it was pitched too high. You need to dumb it down. And I really bristled at that expression. But what I realized was it wasn't about dumbing the content down. It was making the content... Uh, something that could be easily understood and easily applied by anyone in the audience or anyone in the, in the workshop. And I think that's, that's been a really useful filter for me in terms of building, you know, my, my keynote speaking work and, and the training workshops that Kieran and I run is how do we make it, how do we make it feel uh, uh, achievable to people so that anyone in the room feels like they've got to win by spending time with us as opposed to me being up the front of the room and just trying to prove how intelligent I am and everyone walks away of feeling, you know, uh, less well-resourced than when they came in, which is, you know, the complete opposite of, of what I'm trying to achieve. So I think it's, it's, it's actually about understanding where people are. And it's one of the, the functions of 
of translation, which was another one of our, our forever skills, is how do you translate information from one context or one sphere of expertise to another is actually a critical component of being an effective communicator and being an effective leader. A topic that's red hot uh, amongst the, the, the body of work that we're doing at the moment with the, with the, with the clients we work is, is the whole EI space and emotional intelligence. And, and you talk about this idea of developing your self-awareness. I'm, I'm curious in, in how you view that and how you encourage people to, to take on that, which can sometimes be really confronting for them uh, when they start to potentially get a bit of a, a sense of themselves. <laughs> yes, we, you know, we can't run away from ourselves, unfortunately, forever. We show up at some point. But, you know, for our self-awareness, and we think it's interesting that, again, the corporate world and um, we tend to like to put things into tidy boxes and columns and, you know, choose right and wrong and a positive attribute and a negative attribute. But we don't necessarily see it that way. And, you know, we don't really believe in strengths and weaknesses as such in the sense that, you know, there's an arbitrary decision made at some point about what is a strength and a weakness. And we think they're often the same thing. They're just different sides of the same coin. So, for example, Dan is an unbelievably thoughtful, thorough thinker. So he will delve deeply, ruminate frequently, and potentially for you know a long amount of time, he'll revisit and rethink. And now we would say being thoughtful and thorough is a strength. Most of us would. But if we say, you know, that that thinking sometimes means, sorry, Dan, to pick you, it's easier to do something else. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> sometimes, uh, you know, leads to a lack of decision making and decisiveness and leads to, you know, a slowness to act, that is potentially a weakness. So is it a weakness or a strength? And it's potentially both. So what we try to do is to have people see that strengths and weaknesses are two sides of the same thing and to say, well, where's, what's the net of that? You know, if I'm, if I'm, decisive and opinionated or am I am I bossy or am I opinionated am I you know too quick to act or am I able to make a decision it very becomes an arbitrary question and we say to them well what do you want to achieve and knowing yourself is knowing what have you got to use and what potentially is going to get in your own way and when you know that about yourself if you know yeah, what what you need to do to get where you need to go when you can design for who you are and not who you wish you were. On a, you know, like a lot of us design for who we wish we were and we're never honest with who we are. And when you can do that, you tend to achieve success better. When you can cheat your own system because you're honest enough with yourself, then you can get a really great result. And it's one of the, one of the potential dangers of saying play to your strengths because essentially what you're saying when you say play to your strengths is just do what you're good at and the problem with that can be is that doesn't it offer you any uh, capacity for improvement so for example let's imagine you're a, a sprinter um, and you're really good at the running part of sprinting now if you play to your strengths you'll typically invest all of your time in training in the running part of the sprinting however imagine you're really bad at coming out of the blocks 
the, the truth is, the more time you spend practicing and strengthening your weakness, the greater your opportunity for improvement in performance is. You know, you might only have 5% available improvement in the running part of sprinting, but in the coming out of the blocks part of sprinting, you might have 20% of improvement available. And so what self-awareness is really about is, is not just understanding, you know, what you're good at and what you're bad at, but also understanding, as Kieran said, that it's not a zero-sum game, that that there are positives and negatives in any strength or weakness and understanding, you know, how you're particularly wired is, is really important. And, and again, it comes down to being able to see the world from ultimate, from, from alternate points of view. The first thing you need to understand is, well, what's my point of view? How am I filtering the world? What are my biases and blind spots that get in the way of me seeing, you know, other points of view? Yeah, I, I think it's uh it's it's a very it's a very powerful thing when people can start to look at how they perceive things and question where that's come from and is it actually delivering them any value it's uh you know we we uh, teach something called default thinking frames and default default thinking frames are sort of like what we call speed archetypes so most people have done some some sort of archetype work uh which is really good for self awareness But we also say, well, you know, how do you recognize other people's defaults and how do you use them to your advantage? But what we love about your default thinking frames is it takes other people being wrong out of the equation because once you have enough self-awareness to say, you know, I like to be liked, right? So my default thinking frame is to accommodate others and to please them. I'm a people pleaser. I like to make other people happy and I don't like confrontation. So I will do anything I can to say yes or to find a way around the confrontation and that becomes really defining if I don't have an awareness around it. And what we're able to do is to go, well, that's my default thinking frame and I know when I'm using it, but I also, once I'm conscious of it, I get to make a choice. I'm like, well, do I want to be liked here or is it more important to, you know, stand my ground and have a really strong opinion? So when that self-awareness is crucial, otherwise you just get what you've always done and gotten and we really like to push people beyond it. You write in the book about the importance of holding yourself and others accountable. I'm finding in the work that we do that uh, that's not necessarily, there's not necessarily a lot of that going on in a lot of organizations. So how can, how can people start Mm -hmm. to hold themselves more accountable and importantly others? Well, I think part of the, part of the issue is being really clear about what the metrics are. I think one of the, one of the problems that we find in, in, in any form of leadership is a lack of clarity slows everything down because you know if if I'm really clear with my team about what the objectives are what the measures are what success looks like what a win looks like it's very easy for them to act autonomously and make decisions you know they don't need to be so caught up in in a uh, in, in vacillating oh is this the right thing to do oh will Dan be angry if we do this you know they don't need to worry about those questions because we've established a sense of of clarity up front and I think that's one of the the most important things. And I think Kieran and I like to, when we're doing strategic work with, with organizations is be really clear about what's your, what's your guiding question in the organization. Uh, 
In other words, what's the question I can ask at any any point or, or any place within the hierarchy of the organisation that tells me whether I'm on track or not? And so that, that idea of, of having a guiding question is, in our mind, a lot more useful than, say, a a traditional mission statement or vision statement, which can be fluffy and woolly and, and not necessarily uh, instructive in terms of behaviour. You also mention this idea of being values-focused. How do people uncover what their values are? Values are an interesting thing because you know, we tend to often be very unconscious about our values and we tend not to articulate them very well. And, you know, corporates have found uh, that values can be really helpful and I think it's the same for individuals or, you know, or companies. If we're very clear about what's important to us and, you know, in a way a moral compass, a guide, a a yardstick to measure ourselves and our behaviour by, I think is incredibly important. And values, provided they're not, generic and wishy-washy so sometimes we find that companies will pick what we call semantically noted words that means everybody can interpret a word uh, to make it mean what suits them well that's where values become hard values should be specific and tight and give people a way in which to know how to behave so you go well if I value this is this in alignment with that or not Versus, let's say we value love or inclusion. You go, does that help me? Is it too broad or is it specific and tight enough? Because when, we, when we're clear and, and the value is powerful, it really helps regulate ourselves and our behavior and helps us design our workplaces. You know, we want our customer to experience that value. So we talk about behavioral design or behavioural branding. And we say, you know, how do you get a company to take a brand uh, brand thinking from just advertising and marketing to what shows up in an experience, in a tangible experience? Because otherwise you spend millions of dollars on marketing and, you know, it's undone by a really bad experience in the store or on the phone in a call centre. So if you know what your value is, like if you value speed, you better deliver fast. Um, so yeah, so for us, it's really great. The work is actually in defining your values and knowing what they are so you can apply them really strongly. And I think that's really key is, is, you know, typically when we talk about values in a, in a, in a commercial or corporate context, it, it really aligns closely with belief. And I think, you know, in, in the work that Kieran and I do, we want to go actually what, what sits behind those beliefs? What does the behaviour look like that brings those those beliefs to life? Because I think it's easy to say, oh, I want you to be customer-centric. But if you actually give people a half a dozen behaviours that demonstrate what customer-centricity looks like, you actually made it easier for them to turn those beliefs or values into action. And a great example of that is, is Nordstrom, the department store in the United States. You know, when they do customer service training, they don't people scripts, they don't give them, you know, they don't tell them to smile at the customer and to make eye contact. What they do is they teach them through stories that demonstrate what exceptional customer service actually looks like. So they give them tangible behaviours that bring those beliefs and values to life. 
So I'm, I'm getting close to the end and I wanted to ask you this final question from the book and it's, it's about this idea that you explore about building engagement by starting and finishing. And I think this resonated with me because I see quite often leaders and businesses that, that are very good at starting something but sometimes maybe not so strong at finishing. Common problem. Yeah, I, I think it's why um, why deadlines matter so much. I mean, Karen, in a very polite way, basically accused me of being a chronic procrastinator a moment ago, um, <laughs> and and I think that's I think that's I think that's I think that's very much fair comment, Kay. I'm not I'm not having a go, but but again, it's it's absolutely true. I will work on something. Uh, over and over and over again, and I will make you know minor nuanced changes that that I think make a huge difference. And then and Kieran pretends she can see what I've done, but I think what's been useful for 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 us is having a deadline. I mean, if if we hadn't had a publishing deadline for this book, I would still be editing and rewriting chapters. Um, so I think you know, whatever you need to do, being, you know, so coming back to self-awareness, understanding, well, what gets in the way of you starting or what gets in the way of you completing a project is really important to understand. And then can you build systems and, and processes and, and infrastructure around, you know, whatever your weakness is so that you can get yourself to take action and you can get yourself to complete. So for me, Having a having a deadline and having an accountability, whether it be to Kieran or whether it be to our publisher, is a critical part of of how I get myself into action and how I get myself to to complete a task. You know what's funny? We've uh, just finished recording the audio book for Forever Skills, and the sound engineer who you know has to listen to the entire book and uh, obviously does that day in day out, listens to people's books and materials said to us when we were completing oh you've really inspired me and we said really and he said yeah I've got all these projects that I just what's your advice for getting them finished because <laughs> it's funny out of everything in the book I think for him what was hugely relevant and I think it's again the human condition is that human beings aren't very good at finishing and seeing things through. We get distracted, other important things come up, we have great intentions, we want it to be better, we're going to keep iterating. Like there's so many reasons not to finish and you know we said to him commit to someone or something. You know Dan's right, a deadline or a promise of delivery or, you know, setting up a meeting or an event or you know, nothing gets you working like making it fairly public and committed to. So for us, we go, that is, and look, so many people we spoke to who were successful talked about this, this ability to get going initially, but also to see it through and finish. Was the difference often between people who are successful and not. So I think that is always going to matter to human beings. And, you know, we, you know, we talk a lot, this book is a lot for parents with kids as well. And anyone with kids knows getting your kids to stick with anything <laughs> is incredibly challenging. And, you know, this is going to be a forever thing we face, I think, is how do we get human beings to stick and to complete. So we would say commit, 
know it's a really big challenge and build systems and public commitment so that you have to see yourself through. And surround yourself with people that, that will support you and, and keep you going. I think, you know, that's one of the things that's also critically important is understanding that, you know, your environment includes the people you surround yourself with. I mean, when I was, when I got to, to, you know, our 20s, when Kieran and I first started working together, one of the things I had on my goals list was to do stand-up comedy. And, and it was always on my list and I was always talking about doing it. And one of, one of Kieran and my friends um, booked me on stage for an open mic and said, you're on stage in six weeks, start writing. And what that did was it, it really put a gun <laughs> to my head and said, okay, you better be, be writing and you'd better be funny because you're on stage in six weeks. So I think Kieran's right. If you can make, uh, if you can surround yourself with the right people and there's, there's enough um, public or, or, or peer pressure for you to get you to complete something, that can actually be a really useful tool. And I suppose the important question is, were you funny? Hilarious, <laughs> Julian. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had a career as a stand-up comedian for quite a while afterwards. So I think, let's not, you know, he doesn't need help with his ego, but let's presume he was reasonably funny, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so are there any books, people or leaders that uh, inspire the work that you do? Of course. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for, for Kieran and I, probably the most influential mentor we've had in the past decade has been, has been Matt Church, the founder of Thought Leaders. And, and you know, his book, Thought, which is called Thought Leaders, his book, um, I think, you know, for, for Kieran and I is probably the most transformative in terms of changing how we do business, changing how we view what value we can provide um, changes you know in terms of how we deliver that value i think that's probably been the most um profound book and and relationship that we've had uh professionally in the past decade i mean we you know we had we had 20 years before that working in advertising and then the business we currently had have that we started probably eight or nine years ago now um was really uh, um fundamentally influenced by you know meeting Matt and encountering that work. So, you know, I think, you know, certainly for me, but I'm, I'm pretty sure for both of us, that was, that was one of the most influential. Yeah, no, um, definitely for me as encounters. well. And I think, you know, what, what comes with Matt and, you know, what he's built for us is a network of amazing thinkers who know amazing thinkers. And, you know, it just, it passes on, the ripples happen. And, you know, we read a lot. We watch a lot of movies. We read a lot of books. We, we're really interested in the world. And I think you know, one of the things we learned in this research and getting to talk to some, gosh, the book is full of you know, conversations we had with some extraordinarily clever people from all areas and, and places and backgrounds. And, and it's always, you walk away from every conversation inspired. And you know, I don't think everybody gets to live that way to get to spend their time walking away from a conversation with, you know, like Sydney Decker, who's a workplace health and safety guy and being inspired by him or Megan Quinn, who started Netta Porter and being inspired by her story or Libby Trickett, the Olympic swimmer and hearing how she did what she did and, you know, what she's doing now or Lane Beachley. And it's just, you, it's hard not 
to be inspired to do more and to be more when you surround yourself with those kind of people who are great at, you know, just pushing themselves to be the best they can be. And I think that just absolutely fills us and, you know, makes us want to get up and do better every single day. So I think it's hugely important to be inspired by people around you. And if people want to know more about you and the work that you do, where should they go? Theimpossibleinstitute.com. And uh, there's information about what we do and about each of us. And any last words on forever skills and leadership? I think the, the, one of the things that, um, that really resonated in, in all of the research that we did was that, that this idea of education as being something that you, you, you plug in and then you leave alone, that's kind of a very old view of education. I think you know, the idea that this is a constant state of learning and a constant state of self-development is very much something that was, was echoing all the way through the book. And obviously, you know, there are age-based or epoch-based skills that will be important in the moment. But I think what we, what we realized was these forever skills that we identified were things that people said would always be valuable. But perhaps the most interesting thing was these forever skills were also the things that people identified as what took them from being a competent professional to being a capable leader. In other words, the, the forever skills, as well as being something that will always be valuable or always be important, they're actually the thing that elevate you the most as a leader as well. Yeah, I would echo that. What became really obvious in all the time we spent with all these people was that, you know, no one really talked about technical skills and hard skills and skills of the age. You know, they were sort of a given and what when we you know one of the questions we asked people was you know what skill what three skills do you think have been most crucial to you uh, enjoying the position of leadership and success that you have today in your field and everybody chose you know what a more likely term today soft skills you know they chose things to do with the way they think and the way they connect and communicate and the way they manage themselves and other people. And we think, you know, that's why it's really important that, you know, forever skills, uh, leaders pay attention to them and leaders spend time and energy developing them in their people. Because, again, it's really easy to go, well, our people all need this technical skill or particularly our kids. Our kids need coding. You know, if I have another conversation of a parent in panic because their kids haven't spent enough time in coding camp, uh, to go, you know what, your kids are going to be okay if you teach them some of this other stuff. Are they good people? Can they connect with humans? Can they get stuff done? Can they get themselves out of bed in the, every morning and, you know, and go and contribute something meaningful? Because no one goes to work and says, oh, I hope it doesn't, you know, I hope I don't make a difference today. I don't think human beings want to get up and do that. And I don't think we ever have and I don't believe we ever will. So, you know, we really need our leaders to step up and invest in the forever skills. On that note, Kieran and Dan, thank you so much for being on the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for, having, for having us. us. 
Well, that wraps up episode 83 of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast, another great author interview episode for you. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergy Group website, engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver too. And if you are an iPhone user, please feel free, head on over to the Apple site and leave a review. It really does help build awareness of the podcast. In next week's episode, we have another great business leader episode for you, where I speak with Sandra Hills, who is the CEO of Benitas, a leading not-for-profit organization with a mission to provide older Victorians, their families and carers with a full range of quality community-based services and residential homes and apartments. It's another great business leader interview. Till then, love to hear what you think. Happy listening.